do me a favour, if you are listening, please hit the subscribe button, like, share, rate, review the podcast. It really means more than you realise. I believe every business owner has a story to tell. Through seeking true, authentic insights about the entrepreneurial journey, I provide a platform for our peers to share their stories and inspire those that listen. This is the County Business Talks podcast, powered by Picture Book Films. That was a real insight, actually, into how to really support families. And, mm. and as I said, a crash course. I was I was on call as the media person when Madeleine McCann went missing, and wow. and worked with the McCanns through for a few years on on that. I think that what the charity sector gives people is the the power to change something. And I loved that idea. I loved that suddenly, overnight, our ability to fundraise had evaporated. We were no longer able to run events. We were no longer able to help people like you that walk and trek and run and jump out of airplanes for us and do all that stuff. It just evaporated. It was scary a lot of the time, thinking, how is this going to work? And waking up thinking, God, I hope this works or how, you know, how long is this going to last? How long can we last doing this? It's creating a culture that we are all in it together. Like there is no one of us that is more important or, or more expert or, or has a a bigger say. We are all in it as, as one team, a group of experts desperately trying to improve the lives of, of children and young people and their families across Sussex. And the special thing about Rocking Horse is we're also there when it gets really serious and really specialist. It's, it's the, the children with cancer and the babies who can't breathe. It's the teenagers who are experiencing really poor mental health and suicide and eating disorders we do we do all of that stuff that's what makes it special i think that's what keeps me happy is is there's a bigger there's a bigger job to be done and i've got a little part to play and i'll play my part until the big job gets done Good to go. Magic. Well done there. Here we are. We're here. We're here. Here we are. Episode 24 of 24. You made it. We're here. We're here. I'm delighted (laughs) to be welcomed with CEO of Rockin' Horse Children's Charity. Woo! Anna Holland. (laughs) Anna, how are you? I I'm fine. How are you? You are your voice is even more croaky than it was last night. You are clinging on there. Thank you, Sam. Just a massive, massive thank you. What an incredible twenty-four hours later. It's been uh, it's been uh, many things I've done. This has been probably one of the most magical. It's been brilliant. Like every guest has just been great. Um, just hearing so many fascinating stories and yeah. you know. People have jumped on online from other countries and all sorts. And it's just yeah. been, it really has been fascinating. People were coming last night and supported. And it was, it was lovely to have Kelly and my mum and dad and the kids as well. And yeah, it was, uh, it's been a magical, magical day. Magical 24 hours. Yeah, I was going to say day, day really, night, but, back into day. Yeah, it's been brilliant. And yeah, look, looking forward to this one. Let's, Here we go. Let's do it. Let's jump in. So look, Great. Well, just tell the listeners a little bit about your story and your career. Yeah. So Donna Holland, Rocking Horse CEO. I have worked in the charity sector for 
more than 20 years now, which feels mm. kind of scary um, and a long time. Um, I've worked in national charities, international charities, local charities, big charities, small charities. They've always been children's charities or young people's charities, mm. but quite often from different lenses. So looking at different aspects of, of what children and young people are facing. Mm. I, I started out in a really small local charity. Um, it was called the Orpheus Centre. It was run by a guy called Richard Stilgo, which my parents and people kind of around that age will remember him being on the telly quite a lot. He did lots yeah. of stuff uh, with Andrew Lloyd Webber and was involved in Starlight Express, which as a kid was, you know, the, the musical of my dreams. Yeah, I, yeah. I love roller skating and I still roller skate. I play for <laughs> a local team, Brighton Rockers. We play roller derby. We play all over the world. And so roller derby and, and skating has been a big part of my life. So wow, wow. Um, Starlight Express was, you know, the musical. Mm. So uh, I started out working for his charity. Um, it was a, a centre for young disabled people uh, using the skills that they might need to stand on stage and sing and perform to help them with their confidence um, to deliver their care and how to direct people to feed you or clothe you or mm. what you want to do and, and the, the parallels between those. So I started there and did five years doing marketing and all sorts of different stuff. Um, and then I went and lived in Estonia for a couple of years, mm. uh, doing some volunteer work. I taught English as a kind of way of getting by and mm. then worked at lots of different volunteer projects. And I'd never done a, a gap year, so I kind of wanted to go and do something mm. kind of hands-on. So I volunteered and worked in orphanages, worked with trafficked women, worked in old people's homes, just anything I could possibly do to find lots of different organisations. So. Uh, did that for a while and then I came back to the UK and I went to work for a charity called Missing People which at the time was called National Missing Persons Helpline yep. um, and I worked with them through their rebranding process and worked with some really awesome people that was a real kind of crash course in mm. in communications but also service delivery and how to deliver really compassionate services mm. because actually the the thing about what the charity delivered as, as missing people wasn't necessarily about finding the people mm. that were missing that was kind of the police's job and whilst the charity would support and use its platforms and its ability to generate media to help actually it was about supporting the people that were left behind when a child went missing or when a, a family member went missing so um that was a real insight actually into how to really support families and yeah. and as i said a crash course i was i was on call as the media person when madeline mccann went missing and wow. and worked with the mccanns through for a few years on on that as well as um uh, not long after that actually um shannon matthews was yeah, another yeah, quite yeah. high profile case yeah, so yeah. worked on those um so yeah i was there for a few years and then i went off to girl guiding went to work with girls and young women. And again, another rebranding process really and supporting them through, they were on a real journey to, to become a much more inclusive organization. They were mm. kind of historically quite white, middle-class and Christian. And they had this mm. kind of image problem actually, because that, what they were doing wasn't really reflective of that. So supporting them and working on projects that helped them open up to new audiences, worked on their trans inclusivity staff, redeveloping their program to make it more modern and relevant, 
did lots and lots of different stuff. It was a again a real kind of crash course mm. in just just how much a charity can achieve. And while I was there, that was some of some of the most interesting experiences, but also some of those kind of light bulb moments. And yeah. the, particularly around, um, we uh, we had to raise two million quid to redevelop the program. So if you know much about guiding and scouting it's all about badge collection and yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff I yeah a, i was a cub were you yeah, okay back yeah back in the day so i was a brownie and uh i got my uh i remember even at the time brownies are six to ten years old and i got my hostess badge i don't know whether there's an equivalent in the cubs but probably not mm -hmm. but it's um it's uh you basically make a cup of tea and serve it to somebody and mm -hmm. i remember at the time thinking well, i know how to make a cup of tea why do i need to learn how to make a cup you know serve it it wasn't like let's all make a cup of tea and it was <laughs> yeah. a nice community thing anyway this kind of stuck in my mind and when i was at girl guiding we we started doing this program called the girls attitude survey which was like a a piece of research that looked at the temperature it was like a temperature check for what girls and young women were yeah. experiencing and actually what we started then doing was using that as a platform to campaign for lots and lots of different issues that were affecting girls and young women so that's where the work that we did around getting rid of um page three out of the sun which again was one of those things that as a kid you grew up just thinking it was normal that there were teenage girls half dressed in a in a public news a very you know big um publication and uh, the girls and young women in through the girls attitude survey said this is outrageous and this is affecting us yeah. boys bring it into school and show us it and and use it as a, a weapon against us but there were lots of other campaigns that came yeah, out of yeah, all sure. of that stuff and uh, uh one of the kind of highlights or certainly i thought at the time one of the highlights of my career was as uh, probably what late 20s maybe uh the girls attitude survey <laughs> got taken to number 10 and uh, so I went along as the representative from Girl Guiding to uh, talk about the Girls' Attitude Survey. And actually, I think it was about the effect of um, the media and images and how that was affecting girls and young women's self-esteem and, and the impact of the kind of patriarchal impact of that on girls and young women's self-esteem. So I went along to number 10 and th literally thought that was the best day ever this was you know i'd made it took a photo of myself outside number 10 <laughs> messaged my mom yeah. you know i was so excited and uh, and you know what a great experience yeah, and and yeah. and really thanks to the the leadership at, at girl guiding for sending me as yeah. as a reasonably young person to go and do that and i got into the room i walked into the room and it was being chaired by this guy who was much older than me at the time and uh, he was dressed in a kind of military outfit i have no idea which type of military i'm not really down with that but i, I knew i recognized it as like okay you, you're yeah. you're in the military and as soon as i walked in he said oh good the tea girl's here and all of that excitement and all of that confidence and, and you know best day ever stuff just evaporated immediately and uh and i think again from the, the generation that i am my first instinct instinct was don't embarrass him. Don't say anything that might make him feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Show him up. Don't challenge. Just try and soften the situation. Yeah. And uh, in the same way that you had, you know, when people bib their horns at you when you're 14, yeah, yeah, yeah. don't don't make it worse. Just ignore it. So 
kind of got myself together and said, oh, no, actually, I'm, I'm here to talk about the, the impact of the patriarchy on girls and young women's self-esteem and sat down and, you know, the women around the room kind of nodded at me and it did, did that kind of shared thing of like, yeah, we know that was a horrible experience. But and I got back to the office thinking, yeah, the, the hostess badge and the tea badge absolutely shouldn't be something that, yeah. that we're doing. So I was really proud to be part of that journey. And I, I was in the fundraising team. My job was to raise that money. And we did. And then some other brilliant colleagues who worked in the programme team just completely redeveloped the entire programme. So, and it now does amazing. I mean, it did amazing things before, but it's really focused on yeah. giving girls and young women the skills and experiences they need, as well as collecting the badges and yeah. doing all the stuff that Girl Guiding does. So, so yeah, I was there for a, a, a while. Yeah. Um, after that, I went off to work at a youth mental health charity, a digital mental health charity pre-COVID. We delivered all of our services through a phone actually and it came from the idea really the kind of background stuff of that was that even at that time this was 10 years ago young people didn't really expect to ever have to walk into a bank to do their banking it didn't you know yeah. online banking was a, a thing and and they'd never had to walk into a bank it just seemed like why would you ever need to do that and yet for young people walking into a mental health service you'd have to walk into a physical building and usually that building was in your town in your nearby city maybe and it had youth mental health service kind of branding and banners and you know it was very much like a difficult and a barrier to stop young people accessing services so this charity digitized that entire service and put it online and worked with the nhs and delivered that those kind of mental health counseling um via web chat the phone and, and Skype actually it was yeah. before before the zoom days but it was uh, yeah all of that kind of stuff and so they support at the time they're supporting around three million young people every year with pretty much anything that a young person contacted them about from suicide to <coughs> homelessness to mental health stuff yeah. to benefits housing whatever they wanted to, to talk about sexual health so I worked there for a while and then I was living in Brighton already by then, but commuting up to London. And I thought I need to, I need to live and work in the same place. It was yeah. actually during the time when there were lots and lots of strikes and it was just, you know, going up to London yeah. was an absolute nightmare. It got to the point five days a week. Yeah. Five days a week. So it was pre kind of working from home being normal. I did work from home occasionally and, uh, I just thought I've got, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm constantly either late for a meeting going into town or late for my life when I'm back in town. I can never, yeah. you know, my friends would say, oh, do you want to come to this theatre gig? And I'd say, I can't, I don't, don't buy me a ticket because I don't know if I can get home by 7.30. Yeah. So I was really lucky, found uh, an interim post at a charity called Maternity Worldwide, who amazing, do amazing work in sub-Saharan Africa with um, girls and young women. So a lot of girls and young women in sub-Saharan Africa die in childbirth. And they die in childbirth for three reasons, really. One is that there are no hospitals, there's no midwifery, there's no neonatal services. So there's nowhere for them to go, even if there was the ability to get there. The second one is then the ability to get there. So the roads might be dangerous or there might not be transport or it's just too far to go. And then the third one is around actually their their economic value in, in society is that sometimes they die because it's not worth keeping them alive. It's it's too expensive to, to access that treatment. 
And so the charity kind of looked at each of those three prongs and delivered services, either yeah. setting up maternity centres or providing bikes and transport that villages could access and use to get women and children to, to hospital, or economic empowerment programs that enabled women to have value in their communities that meant they were more likely to be invested in if they, they came into, into harm whilst they were trying to give birth. So it was a fascinating charity and, yeah. and, and a local one. It's based in Brighton and, and works in in oh, sub-Saharan Africa yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah so a couple more local charities and then yeah. as you know turned up at Rocking Horse so <laughs> and here we are and here we are yeah absolutely yeah so it came from actually as as most things do just chance really i so i was doing a marketing degree mm -hmm. at university and uh, i had to find an industrial placement or, or go on an industrial placement as part of your degree between years uh, two and three and i went off to the careers fair place that they have for the university and walked around and it's lots of companies trying to encourage you to, to apply to their their um, industrial placement program and then onto their grad scheme and as I was walking around it was all huge huge companies kind of Shell and ExxonMobil BP and lots of these companies that I thought I don't uh, I don't I don't want to work there for a year let alone join their grad program and none of these things felt like they were going to be doing really good stuff in the world and, yeah. and at the, that point it wasn't about the charity I just thought that's not for me that's not what I'd done what I wanted to do with the rest of my life I'd chosen marketing because it's a kind of combination of art and science and yeah. I liked both but was never going to be an artist or a scientist <laughs> but a little bit of both was is kind of the right balance and about my level um, and I really enjoyed doing marketing and 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 sadly, and I hope it's different now, we never did charity marketing as part of our degree. That didn't seem to be on the radar. So I went home a bit sad and think, oh, what am I going to do as my industrial placement? You know, maybe I shouldn't do an industrial placement and I'll just go straight into year three. And I was sat at home with my mum looking through the local paper because this was the 90s and that's how <laughs> how people so found jobs in those days. Yeah, exactly. Looking through the, the classifieds in the back of the newspaper, <laughs> just trying to think, what do I want to do as a job? And there was a little advert for the Orpheus Centre and it said they wanted a marketing, I think they wanted a marketing officer or a coordinator kind of level post. And they were looking at, they wanted a website. This was back in the day, not everyone had a website. And they were interested in how they would reach more young people. And my mum said, well, maybe you could do that. And I thought, oh, I mean, that's, that's a real job. So contacted them and said, look, I'm a marketing um, student. You know, the stuff that's in the advert, I think I could do. Could I come and chat to you? So I did. I went and chatted to Megan, who was the CEO there, incredible woman and someone I still think, what would Megan do? I uh, had a chat with her and said, look, I, you know, I've never built a website before, but I'm pretty sure I can. You know, um, I don't, I, you know, I'm use, uh, we didn't call it social media back in that day, but it was just using online resources to reach young people. I've got a MySpace page, as everybody has. So yeah. I can set you up a MySpace page, which is about the extent of social media then. Um, yeah, good old MySpace. So I mean, I was, I was a young person. So of course I had a MySpace page. And uh, and she said, 
yeah, let's give it a go. Come and do a year. We'll do it as your industrial placement. It had to be a paid industrial placement. We'll we'll have you as an industrial placement. So I started there. I built them a website. I literally bought the, do you remember the dummies guide twos? They might still exist. Those yellow yeah, and red, and not yellow and red, yellow and black, black books. Yeah. I bought one of those, was very open and just sat on my <laughs> desk and used, uh, what was it? A Microsoft front page, which was the um, office. I don't even know if that exists anymore. The office platform for building websites. Okay. Sat on Microsoft front page and just built them a website <laughs> with a nice hit counter, because that was a thing back in those days. Nice did that, set them up a MySpace page, and then just got involved in everything that they did and 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 thought, this is what I want to do. This is how I use all that marketing, that art, that sciencey stuff for good. And and it was, yeah, I stayed there for a year, went back to university. They offered me a full-time job whilst I was doing my placement. So I had a sabbatical almost from it yeah. for to go and finish my degree and then came back straight afterwards and then stayed there for another five years. and. Yeah, as I've yeah. talked about, never looked back, never thought this is, there's nothing else I want to do in the world other than do this. But, but, but you, you get into to university then and study or, or, or just for that, yeah, you obviously, your core values of, you, you, you was conscious then uh, that you wanted to do something purposeful. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's what uh, like, like I find fascinating. Uh, that, that young age is going, I'm, I, whatever, it, whatever I do, whatever role I'm going to go into, it's got to have purpose and not. Mm. And being that self aware at that young age, I'm like, oh, 43 and still wondering what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Still, I'm still that's... juggling. Still, juggling. <laughs> still waiting to grow up. Yeah, yeah, still, <laughs> but, but it, it strikes me like just listening to you talking about because you, you could have easily gone for some of those bigger jobs, but it, from from how you described it is that they don't didn't align with what your values no so not at all enjoy. but you, you you was at that young age you were sure of what your values were as yeah and i think also i don't think i was i was back at 25 i think i would have i don't i didn't have a clue really i, was, I said i still mm. don't know but, but i guess from knowing that i've got you've got the, the values that you have instilled in you that you go i'm going to follow that path because that's purposeful and that's going to yeah. align with my me doing a career for the rest of my life it's got to align with who i am as a person and yeah i think for me at the time it was more about there was a little bit of me of seeing my dad worked at the same organization that he did mm. from from 16 till the day he retired and mm. so in my head you did you did things for life so mm. thinking like well i don't want to do that for life but then also thinking, I think that what the charity sector gives people is the, the power to change something. And I loved that idea. I loved that. If I'd gone and worked for some of those grad programs, I was thinking, what am I going to change? I, I knew at that point I had the kind of right, well, probably not particularly good when you're a teenager, it's all a bit angsty, but I had that something has to change the world has to change there are mm. people out there that are not having the same opportunities and you know from a very kind of teenage perspective of it the world mm. felt a bit unfair for some people and so for me the charity sector was a, a way of having power to change it gave you yeah. agency you could you could actually try and work on something that would change something rather yeah. than it wasn't necessarily that those companies were doing bad things in the world, but they just yeah. weren't changing the world. Yeah, they weren't having an impact. Obviously. Yeah, exactly. Like, 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 like nowadays, like you sort of, I guess we talk about companies that are, you know, 
sustainable and, mm. and, and you know had and and we talk about that you know a lot that we're going to work with that company are they are they in line with our values are they sustainable are they yeah good? exactly are they the right impact today that's people looking at that now so much more aren't they i think yeah and i'm so glad that 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 has changed uh, in that kind of 20 years actually if you went to that grad program you might actually if you're inspired to make a change and 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 be the be the change yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that those some of those opportunities might actually give you a chance to do that now but yeah. certainly yeah when i was there as my <laughs> my teenage self was <laughs> was not thinking that was possible so talk to going through the different roles in the charity obviously talk to me about because before obviously coming to rocking all shoes deputy ceo yeah and concordia that was what i was in yeah so um talk to me about their money in that charity during the pandemic yeah gosh i mean i think my experience and certainly talking to you know other charity other charities other ceos yeah. others leaders in in the charity sector it was really similar for a lot of us there was these two contrasting things we had to deal with one was suddenly overnight our ability to fundraise had evaporated we were no longer able to run events we were no longer able to help people like you that walk and trek and run and jump out of airplanes for us yeah. and do all that stuff it just evaporated and so there was lots of kind of cancellations and and rescheduling and rescheduling and pushing back and pushing back so there was this kind of concern of gosh where are we where are we going to get the money from to mm. do the things that we know we need to do um and and actually i think that whole process has has changed the way the charity sector and other people outside the charity sector see our reserves actually of mm. so many charities during that period had to lean back into their reserves mm. and historically you might have kind of three months six months of reserves and and lots of us had to use reserves for a year 18 months and mm. and it's really enabled a discussion to happen about why charities need to hold that money just in case something like this happened and mm. and it had been such a long time since charities needed to do that that there was starting to be a discussion around well, why do you need reserves at all yeah. so there was that there was okay what have we got in reserves and how long can we function before we need to start worrying about where the money's coming from and on on the flip side of worrying about where the money was going to come from and how you were going to fund the services, there was a skyrocketing of the need for the services that you're delivering. And again, this is universally an experience of many, many charities across the sector that we, at the time I was working for a charity that ran uh, emotional wellbeing programs in schools. So supporting young people who weren't dealing well with their emotions and that was impacting their behavior and their ability to socialize and, and their academic achievement. And suddenly we were seeing the need for that skyrocketing because young people were really struggling going mm -hmm. into lockdown and having to do online uh, schooling, but also we couldn't get into schools. So a, a really quick, and again, not, not alone in this, so many charities had to go through this very, very quick digitization process mm -hmm. of just suddenly, okay, how do we put, how do we make our services online? How do we deliver that online? And I was working with two incredible women at, at Concordia, Stephanie, who was the CEO, who just gave us the green light to do, try, yeah. fail, just get on with it, give it a go. And yeah. Fiona, who was running the program, and they were amazing. And luckily, having come from a digital youth mental health charity, I could 
pulling quite a lot of the stuff that we'd already yeah. been doing. So it was scary a lot of the time thinking, how is this going to work? And waking up thinking, God, I hope this works or how, you know, how long is this going to last? How long can we last doing this? Tiring. There's lots and lots of long days. And again, I don't think that's even universal to the charity sector. <laughs> so many of us suddenly went from working nine to five ish to a lot longer, yeah, longer yeah, hours sure, sure. And, and, and being at home just uh, any day or night trying to get stuff done, but also really inspiring. I mean, you know, we managed to do that. We digitized that yeah, yeah. process. We supported more young people through that process. And, and we learned loads of stuff when you come out the other side. And I hope we're, we're out the other side as much as it's possible. You look back on any of those experiences in the same way. I look back at my time at Missing People running a press team with national stories or working at Girl Guiding while the Daily Mail are being very angry about all the stuff that we're doing you at the time it feels awful and scary and terrifying and, and you feel too small for for the for the task at hand when you look back you think my god what have we learned it's uh we did, like, i think so many people come out of covid didn't they? and you, you look back and go you know how many companies pivoted and, and had to and no obviously some couldn't and they they failed but uh, I guess from from any any business model, and we're going to this in a bit, I suppose. But any business model charity is still a business fundamentally. Mm. It's still got to generate. It's P and L. Still got to generate money, and, and yeah. what it looks like in yeah. obviously various different ways. But but ultimately, yeah, our, our companies look to different aspects of what they're doing, especially from a digital point of view. That you're able to go, you know what. Um, Brad, for example, or Network Mark Club, we're going to go on Remo. They talked about Remo saved exactly, and yeah. Like and, just, and I thought that for me that was such a massive inspiration. Like in, and I see so many businesses just go. We've got Kathy oh, Cat and like Brian Jean. I love her. She's brilliant. Yeah. Again, pivoted loads of stuff and done some amazing things. And and there's so many. Like for me, like. We're, we're all up. people I ask obviously who, who inspires you and blah 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 and, and I ask and, and my quick fire questions on every episode but for me I'm surrounded by people that, that inspire me like within our business community and, and listen to stories like that even about the charities or sector and stuff it's small these small charities are just able to go well, we've got to adapt and we've got to, and just that survival mode kicks in and it's, it's it does really. and I, you're right actually to look back on them times actually at the time thinking this is the worst thing like we can't and we're ever going to get through it and here we are through it and thriving and did yeah yeah turning the, turn the corner hopefully absolutely yeah i hope i hope we are yeah, yeah. Talk, talk to me a bit uh, as we alluded to there business and charity uh, they are still similar to and again i, I talk about culture as yeah. i do on every episode too talk to me about the culture of rocking horse like since you've come on board and have you got a vision for really what what that looks like to, to you and how you want it to be within, within the team now yeah so we're a we're a small charity just yeah. probably just under a million quid um there's eight nearly nine of us um quite a lot of part-time people so a really small group of of mm. people what we've built um is a a group of experts actually every 
every person in my team is an expert in what they do. They are the the most knowledgeable and the most experienced mm -hmm. and it's their area of work. Um, and, and my job really is to join the dots between what they're doing and, and try and point everybody in the direction that the trustees and myself have worked mm -hmm. on with our strategy. But I'm incredibly lucky to work with people that are those experts. And and we were talking about this uh, last night, actually, with um, with Rachel on her one around how you scale from from 10 to how many hundreds, yeah. hundreds of people. I can't see Rocking Horse needing to ever scale to that. You know, we are yeah. we are in Sussex. We, you know, we, we there's so much more to do, but yeah. we don't need to grow for growth's growth sake. We don't need to be a huge charity. What we do is is very local and, and very specific. Um, so it is about that that building that team, and and I think for me, it's it's creating a culture that we are all in it together like mm -hmm. there is no one of us that is more important or or more expert or or has yeah. a, a bigger say we are all in it as as one team a group of experts desperately trying to improve the lives of of children and young people and their families across sussex and and to do that in a way that is absolutely kind kind not only to each other in that we respect each other's exper experience and expertise but we're also really kind to ourselves while we're doing it because actually working for a charity is really tough mm -hmm. and it's it's tough for different members of the team in different ways so for example for for our fundraisers it's really hard being a fundraiser you are constantly asking people for help and we all know how hard it is to ask for help um but if you are asking for help which is basically what we do on a on a daily basis we're asking people will you give us your time will you give us your money will you give us your experience please can we have if you're doing that day in day out and being told no a, a lot of the time that's really hard you've got to pick yourself up each time and when you're very passionate about what you're asking for help for it's really tough to keep doing that and the fundraisers do that every single day on a daily daily basis constantly asking because i guess it's like that sense of almost like rejection that you're yeah. gonna inevitably maybe get Mm -hmm. not, not inevitably that's a bit hard because I know there's lots of people that do support but it is you've got to knock on a lot of doors like, yeah. like a salesperson yeah exactly that it's the same skills and and experience and resilience that you need yeah, yeah. in sales and this is you know where marketing and sales and it's all you yeah. know whether it's a company or a, a charity you've got to keep going in the face of no or maybe later or being ignored or you know whatever it is you've got to keep going and so the fundraisers have a really tough job of that and and they need to we need to be kind to them they might be having a good day or a bad day they might have been told no just one too many times that day uh but really then kind to themselves as well of like you know it's okay if you don't have a good day it's yeah. that's totally fine but because i guess we, we, and the difference between because if you're selling something to someone trying to sell a product a service whatever it is you're, you're whereas fundraising that you're selling something to someone there's a benefit to them because yep. it's the product you're going to buy you're going to purchase this you're giving mm. me your money when you're fundraising you're just actually asking them to just give you money yeah <laughs> and sometimes it's, it's time or whatever it looks yeah like. sometimes you're asking for a specific thing yeah. please can you give me some money so i can pay for yeah. this amazing research that will yeah, make yeah. x y and z young yeah, people yeah. have a better experience or buy this piece of kit sometimes it's asking can you just support the charity and trust that we will spend this money in the best possible way. 
um and that's tough so it's yeah help it helping each other and every role in the organization has a different kind of toughness whether you're if you're a project manager and you're delivering projects you're working in in the nhs and working with doctors and nurses you're working in this huge organization where things are slow and takes time and you have to find the right person and it's a kind of a constant battle is the wrong word but it's a constant challenge to keep yeah. going and keep making sure that you are getting the best projects and the best bits of equipment into a into a hospital so i think everybody in the team is an expert everybody has this really tough aspect of their job and for me it's really making sure that everybody is in it together we are all in it together actually ultimately my job is if it goes wrong i'll worry about that yeah. their job is to do the good stuff and celebrate the successes and equally celebrate the successes this isn't about me this is about the team we are we are one yeah, yeah. yeah. Love that. How does that you've worked in a number of different charities how does then the culture that a rocking horse compared or compared to one of maybe the bigger charities that you've worked mm. at is it is there a difference that is there a difference that you've seen or have you brought do you feel your skills from that large organization into what can mm. i would hope i've brought all the elements of best practice that i've seen yeah. and none of the bad stuff yeah. <laughs> but you never know right ask the team <laughs> um yeah every single charity i've worked for has a different culture and and whether you are a junior member of staff starting out or a middle manager or or yeah. or leading it you then have a different level of agency and and an ability to affect that culture they, they are all so different i think yeah. it's exactly the same as different companies yeah. and you know we work with so many amazing companies who are the wonderful people that say yes to us yeah. <laughs> and you you can tell when you walk into an organization what it's like yeah. and and from how people interact with you and who you get to talk to and yeah. and who interacts with you so yeah there's there's no it's amazing i know, I know we sort of spoke about it as well about like the, the i guess the perception of rocking horses being bigger than nine eight nine members of staff yeah um and like you said many of them part-time and i think that like, it's great like that every time you talk and you talk so brilliantly about about rocking horse and deliver the the, the message of what it's about and how you do it but actually alluding to the fact that we are a small team and letting people know that and i think that's i do think that's an important yeah we are a re a, in compare in comparison we are a very small organization you know we are a, a a brilliant team of of incredible humans doing really amazing work but we are tiny and and certainly i think the comparison to some of the larger charities in sussex i always think gosh i would i would love a marketing team that size and a fundraising <laughs> team that size and a finance team that side it's that we've got one person one person one person and yeah. you know we are lucky to have one person in each of those roles yeah, who sure. are amazing yeah. there's only one of them <laughs> so. yeah of course, of course. yeah see, i mean for me uh just before we move on to the last sort of couple of questions uh, as i as i alluded to last night i think what timing wise obviously i didn't want luca to break his arm but timing wise from a motivation point i'm looking i looked at what was in the hospital on saturday and I, I, he was lying in bed sleeping pain kelly was on the, the, the bed next to him and 
they let us both stay in, which was really kind. So I didn't think generally because it was late and I was sitting on the thing and I was awake and looking mad and just I saw all these rocking all stickers on the equipment and uh, honestly it killed me. I just looked mad and just felt like I'm doing this thing and or you, you said to me, well, I guess people, uh, I I put a post out and said about what's my why and why do I raise money for fucking what I do and not only not only did they uh, save my son's life when he was young, but to actually then fix him again, uh, so close to this event. And you you talk about it really well. At, at any time you do events, that we're there for the, the scrapes and the bumps and breaks and, and cuts and scrapes. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. Bumps <laughs> and breaks and cuts and scrapes. It's a it it came yeah from somewhere over the last year or so that I've been talking about it, and I just thought it's so true. Rocking horse is there for all of that stuff, all that, you know, I, I remember um, live, uh, my parents live near East Grinstead. I was forever at the children's ward, the peanut ward up in East Grinstead, you know, getting a, your chin, or well, my brother used to get his chin done quite a lot when he'd fall out of a tree or I'd cut my arm and usually knees, you get your knees sorted out or, but it is, we're there for all of that kind of stuff that just happens. It yeah. is life, it happens, you know, kids fall and break and bump and it, it get they get hurt. but. We're also there, and the special thing about rocking horses, we're also there when it gets really serious and really yeah. specialist. It's, it's the the children with cancer and the babies who can't breathe. It's the teenagers who are experiencing really poor mental health and suicide and eating disorders. We do we do all of that yeah. stuff. That's what makes it special. Yeah. It really is, is the most special player, you know. I don't need to go on about <laughs> about my love for it and, and why it's so amazing and it is it truly is and, and like you said it's such an amazing you've got, we've got an amazing team at Rocking Horse and you know, every single one of them all the fun day every single event always with a smile on their face and always doing such a, a, a and that is credit to you with, with that culture and that you created and, and and it's amazing so I mean look t talk talk to me about what's the future for for Donna Holland well uh the future for for me is is the future for rocking horse for now I'm I'm gonna be around to to for a while hopefully um I think for for the charity it's as I said it's not growth for growth sake but I want to be able to do more for yeah. I want to work more closely we've got this amazing um champions program that we set up in the last year that one of the team runs and has done an amazing job we've now got 36 doctors and nurses yeah. and other medical staff that work all over sussex in all of the children's wards and baby units um, and they're the ones who tell us what what young people are experiencing what projects they need what equipment and and stuff they might need us to buy so doing more of that and certainly doing that quicker, being able to respond to the needs and the issues that young people are experiencing, speeding that process up as much as I possibly can. And we've done huge amounts of work in the last year to to really speed that process up. But I think there's, there's lots more we can do. Just being there for more children and more families at, at that that moment, as you've experienced recently, when, when they need us the most, um, that's the kind of, you know what's what's in it for me i think one of the things i'm really interested in uh, kind of personally and professionally is the role of the charity sector in pediatric medicine i think there's a you know there's so many amazing mm. 
there's dedicated children's hospitals all over the country and most of them have a, a rocking horse attached to them mm. and and how we can share information amongst those those charities and and understand what works and maybe what doesn't and do more of the stuff that works and less of the stuff that doesn't and how do, how do we understand what works and what doesn't and and then make sure we're getting the money to those really dial changing projects mm. um and rocking horse does some of that stuff we mm. we fund a youth worker who supports young people going into a e with mental health stuff we we fund research that means that there's now the world's first clinic up at sussex looking at personalized medication for kids mm. you know we do that dial changing stuff what I want to do is more of that stuff alongside all the really nice stuff that we do around environments and toys, which all is lovely, but it also has medical purpose. It's all supporting the doctors and nurses. It's pain distraction toys. It's stuff to do while you're having chemo. It's environments that enable doctors and nurses to quickly diagnose kids. They're looking at the ceiling. You can check whether a child can move their neck and diagnose what a child might be experiencing. So it's doing more of that stuff. I love it. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on. You're very welcome. Guest <laughs> 24 hours. We are going to, as I have done with every guest, yeah. finish with our quick fire questions. Okay. Okay. So, what one piece of advice would you give to your 18 year old self? <laughs> it's really trivial, I'm afraid. It's not one of those light bulb <laughs> moments. So, uh, we're reasonably similar age. When I was 18, 18 going into 19 was the millennium. And I was thinking about my 18 year old self and that, that was the year before the millennium. And I spent a lot of my time as an 18 year old being really worried that, that was, the world was about to melt down, that the millennium bug was gonna, <laughs> was gonna have some impact. And incredibly selfishly, you talk about how I was such an enlightened teenager. I was not, I was absolutely concerned that the night I went out for the millennium was gonna be the last night out because the world was gonna melt down. So. And I think it's a lesson, right? We spend a lot of time worrying about the things that don't actually happen. And I would go back to my 18 year old self and say, just don't, don't worry about the millennium. Uh, Robbie Williams is going to come on and sing it. <laughs> that is not going to be the thing that you are, <laughs> are concerned about. What the 2nd of January when we were all like <laughs> breathed a sigh of relief and said, no, okay, that was nonsense <laughs> so yeah sorry it's not more profound but it really would be that who has been the biggest inspiration throughout your life and why i i will always be eternally grateful for my parents for instilling a real sense of hard work in me and my brother. Me and my brother both have a work ethic which entirely comes from my parents. I saw them growing up being incredibly hardworking and, and teaching us and showing us that hard work was necessary and not to be afraid of it and not to shirk it and just to go for it. And, you know, through, I, I was one of the first years that you had to pay for university and I, told my parents that they basically pay you to go to university and you get loads of grants and that <laughs> turned out to be completely wrong I was the the year you had to pay so again working you know I spent my whole of my university time working I worked in factories and I was a waiter and I was I did all sorts of jobs I was yeah. dinner lady in a private school I did so <laughs> many different jobs but that felt entirely normal to me yeah. because I'd seen my parents work I mean we'd now call it hustle but they just worked all the time so that I'm internally grateful. 
I think, and similarly, actually, I think to some of the other guests you've had on over the last 24 hours, I don't have one person. I have lots of people that I've come into contact over my my career who I think, oh, what would they do in that situation? And I'm constantly inspired by by people around me. You know, yeah. I, at the moment, I have Carleen Jackson's doing amazing stuff talking yeah. about dyslexia. I'm dyslexic, talking about dyslexia and flexible working. And Emma Cleary's doing the same with flexible working. Steph Pryor's doing amazing stuff with inclusion and diversity. Yeah. I, I spend a lot of time just thinking, yes, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be more like these people that are <laughs> around me. So, yeah, I kind of pick and choose every day of like who's going to be my person that I'm going to model a bit more in my life. Could you recommend a book or a podcast for our listeners that has had an impact on you? Yeah, so this was an easy one, actually. So I'm an introvert and I grew up or my career kind of started in what it felt like at the time in a, in a world that idolised extroverts. And I thought, I'm not. I'm not like that. I'm not somebody who naturally puts myself forward or wants mm. to speak out in meetings unless I've got something really important to say. I'm, you know, I tend to listen and mm. and and I thought I'm never going to be, you know, the people that I I look up to, who my line managers and the CEOs of the charities that I was working for when I was more junior. I thought I'm never going to be them. I'm never going to be that person. Mm. And the book was um, Susan Cain, Quiet, and it's about the power of extroverts and I read that book I think it's a 2012 book I read that book and just felt like this sigh of relief that one it was okay to be an extrovert and that actually there were things about being an extrovert that I could lean into mm. and I could still be a manager or a leader or you know the mm. things that I wanted to do the, the ability to have the power to change stuff wasn't going to be hampered by my ability to generally hide in the corner and and be a bit more quiet and listen rather than speak mm -hmm. and do all of that stuff so I, I thoroughly recommend it if you're an introvert or you're feeling like you might be shy or that mm -hmm. read that book because it was it was vindication really for me awesome awesome final question okay finally what is your one rule for living a fulfilled life I think it's got to be do something that's bigger than you. And I'm incredibly lucky to do a job that if I won the lottery, I have to play the lottery first, but if I won the lottery, I would still do this job. I would do it if I didn't get paid. And, and all the times that it feels hard or difficult or scary, I think I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing it for the person who doesn't have a platform to speak or the child in hospital that needs this service or the family that are going through the worst experience in their life and that's the thing that gets me up it, you know when you walk on stage in front of a thousand people and the fear is there I walk on stage thinking this isn't about you this is about the people you represent so I think that's what keeps me happy is is there's a bigger there's a bigger job to be done and I've got a little part to play and I'll play my part until the big job gets done. What an absolutely brilliant way to finish on amazing answer and uh, you are doing amazing work and saving genuinely saving people's lives and this uh, is incredible so from the bottom of my heart obviously thank you for all you do with, and with the Rockin' Horse and, and everything that Rockin' Horse stands for and what it's about and, you saved my son's life so that's why we're here raising money and it's been uh, 
a magical experience doing this whole thing and thank you for being my final guest thank you sam and as they say <laughs> the final time is a wrap <laughs> you are. made it we've done it i believe every business owner has a story to tell through seeking true authentic insights about the entrepreneurial journey i provide a platform for our peers to share their stories and inspire those that listen this is the county business talks podcast powered by picture book films